All right, we're looking at the Minor Prophets, and we are looking particularly today at the book of Zechariah. Now, do you remember what Mark said the name Zechariah meant? Really a great explanation of that. The name Zechariah means God remembers. It's not the idea that God has forgotten. It's not the idea that God has holy amnesia. It's the idea that when God remembers, that means God goes to work for his people. It's a word of action, not a word just a cognitive kind of the, 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 the cleaning off of the cobwebs in the brain. It's a work of action. And this book is all about action. If we had time, we'd look, go into what apocalyptic is. This is one of the most thorough apocalyptic books in the Old Testament. It's filled with visions and symbols and metaphors that are drawn themselves from earlier Scripture. And Mark uh, had, had a great way of talking about that last week. So please go back and take a look at that. Mark said it's written in 518 B.C. Maybe. Maybe not. I think it's a little bit later, but we can talk about that on another occasion. But it is, as Mark said last week, an amazing book. And we're going to be looking at some of those amazing passages here today. Now, this is what we're going to do. First of all, we're going to define the term Messiah. Now, you think, well, don't we already know that? Well, in a sense, yes, and perhaps in a way, no. More about that in a second. Second thing, we're going to look at particularly Matthew's use of Zechariah. The reason is I just finished a book. Not on Matthew's. It's called Matthew's, Matthew Through Old Testament Eyes. And it's the idea of if we really knew the Old Testament well, how would we read Matthew differently? And I found places that I wasn't even expecting where Zechariah figures prominently. We're going to be looking at a few of those. And then next, we're going to look at a phrase that occurs over and over again in the book of Zechariah on that day. Chapters 12, 13, and 14, on that day. I, I think it's about 13 or 14 times that that phrase occurs. We're going to be looking at several of those and drawing some conclusions from that. And then some points from home when everything else is done. Let's see. Now, first of all, defining the Messiah. This is, uh, the word Messiah comes from a Hebrew word. It is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Hamashiach. Say that with me. Hamashiach. Hamashiach means the Messiah. It means literally in Hebrew, the one who is anointed. There was a, a ceremony that went on. It was like a coronation of a king that, that when the people had voted and the prophet came to anoint the king, that was the day in which the person really became king. So the anointing was very, very important part, like a coronation, like having a crown put on your head. Pretty significant. Now, in the New Testament, <clears throat> pardon me, the name comes over, the, sorry, the name. The title comes over as the word Christ. Now, the word Christ is simply a translation of the idea of Hamashiach. It means the anointed one. It's a Greek verb, epsilon contract verb. My Greek students will recognize that. Epsilon contract verb, chriseo, that means to anoint with oil. So Christos means the one who is anointed. So when we did this Bible translation a few years ago, uh, we, whenever we found the word Christos, we translated it the anointed one. The anointed one. 
Because we didn't want to just take the sound of Greek. We wanted to bring also the meaning of the Greek and the Hebrew behind it. And then another friend of mine who's written broadly on these topics describes the the Messiah as a liberating king. So in this book that we did called Rediscovering Jesus, this is the kind of definition that we gave. It's a simple definition. It's pretty straightforward. It's this. The Messiah is God's end time, or we could say in a fancy theological language, eschatological. God's eschatological agent whose task is to liberate the world, free the world, rescue the world, save the world, redeem the world, all those from evil, oppression, sin, sickness, and death. All those things, all the above. That's the Messiah's job. Now, some people viewed the Messiah at that time, they viewed the Messiah in a variety of ways. There's one group of Jews that believed the Messiah was going to be kind of a military king. He was going to come in and he was going to come in with real strong right-handed power and he was going to just decimate his enemies. There were others who believed, no, there were not going to be one Messiah, there'd be two Messiah. There'd be a prophet, I mean, excuse me, there would be a priest, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. There'd be a priestly Messiah and there would be a royal Messiah. And some would even add onto that a prophetic realm as well. But in fact, that's adding a little bit to, I think, the formula that is being created in the Old Testament. And I'll show you to some degree why that's happened. That's on page 26 of the book if you want to check my references, if you'd like to do that. Now, here's a passage that I want to show you as we're trying to define the Messiah because it's very very important. Here's the passage, Zechariah chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. Sing, O, and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come, God is speaking, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Very important. This becomes part of the messianic hope, part of the future hope that God himself would come and be and dwell with his people. So part of the future hope, part of the messianic hope, is that Yahweh, to use God's proper name, the I Am, will return to his people. Often that is combined and put together. In fact, this is actually more common than truly messianic passages where the word Messiah or the idea of a shepherd or the idea of a royal king is a part of it. So a wise person once wrote this. I'm going to tell you who it is. Central to Second Temple Judaism. Now Second Temple Judaism is that Judaism that started at the building of the second temple at 515, which is about the time of Zechariah, and continued down to the year A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. So the temple existed while Jesus was around, so Jesus lived in second temple Judaism. Central to that time is the conviction that Israel's God in the past had abandoned Jerusalem had abandoned his people and that he would had promised to return to his people one day that return would be in person not sending a surrogate that per, that would be in glory power that return would be to judge and to save that return would be specifically to bring about a new exodus 
overthrowing Israel's enemies and releasing God's people from bondage. In short, God would return to be king. God himself. Not just a, not just a, a surrogate, not just an agent, but more than that, greater than that. And, oh, that, uh, I guess that's me, okay. Very smart, very smart guy that wrote that. Um, well, let me, let me show you. Even N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright, you know N.T. Wright, right? Look at what he said. Shazam. Oh, wait a minute. That's not right. That was Gomer Pyle who said that. Okay. Uh, instead, Tom, what did you say? Okay. He said, the long-awaited return of Yahweh to Zion, to Jerusalem, to his people. That's the origin of Christology. What is Christology? It's thinking about the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? So we cannot extract or, or take away this divine aspect that in the coming of the Messiah would be the coming of God himself. Now, not everybody got that. Not everybody picked that up. Some set, uh, understood it as kind of separate ideas. But in fact, it's all there together in the book of Zechariah. So here's how it sort of works. The Jews had developed a, an idea about history. And that idea about history was this, that history was actually going somewhere. History has a goal. History has a, to use the Greek word, telos, an end. Not, a, not a, it's over end, but a goal. And it started here with creation. Now, there's a lot of questions these days about creation. We could go into that on another occasion. Uh, has, has the world and the matter always been here? And it's just being sort of resorted out to become a table or to become a microphone or to become you? All that matter's always been around. And so it, nothing ever really comes to exist. It just exists because it's been sort of reshaped into something new. The, the Bible says, and the Jews believed, and most people in the world, I think, still believe that there was a moment of creation, a big bang, if you will, and that history is heading somewhere. And in the middle of history, there is coming a time, and depending upon the text you're reading, either the Messiah or God himself is coming into the world. This is a part of what apocalyptic means. Apocalyptic doesn't mean it's going to be from the ground up. It means it's going to happen from the top down. It's God's action in history. It's not us just coming together and holding hands and singing kumbaya and getting better and better all the time. No, it's not going to happen that way. The way it's going to happen, according to Zechariah at least, and according to much of the Bible, is that it's coming from the top down. God himself is going to return to his people, and the Messiah is a part of that equation. God's agent to bring about liberation from evil and suffering and death and disease and hopelessness. That's the Messiah. And so that coming essentially divides history into two parts. You got one part there that comes to an end, starts with creation, comes to an end. And then the second part of history, as we know it, starts with the coming of the Messiah and it continues, as the Jews would say, Lador Vador, forever and ever. Forever. It just keeps going. 
That's the forever and ever. And so Paul, for example, branded that first age the present evil age because evil is sort of having its way in the world, right? Wars and rumors of wars and, and persecution and, and, and family strife and all those kind of things that we see. That's the present evil age. And then the, the, the age of wrath, that's another term that was given to that same age by the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, the age of wrath, living in this period of wrath where we see God's wrath against the world. And that second age, what is that? Well, as Jesus called it, it's the kingdom of God. As the rabbis said it, it's the haba haolam, the world to come, the world that we're looking forward to, the time in the world and the history that we're, we're coming to. So that's kind of the idea of the Messiah. The Messiah is one who comes into the world and represents and is in the embodiment of God himself coming into the world in person, in glory, in judgment, in salvation to bring about this new world, to bring about this new world that we have. Let's look at a few passages out of Zechariah that deal further. And these are going to be fairly familiar. Uh, The New Testament quotes, I counted this this week, 66 times. Now, I wish it had been 67 I'm glad it wasn't 666 times, but it's 66 times that I can count. It could well be that there's, there's more than that or a few less than that, but that's my estimate. About 66 times, especially it's concentrated in what we call the passion narratives. The week, the last week of Jesus' life, his week of suffering and death and resurrection. And also in the book that we know as the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation occurs over and over there. You'll see, and you'll probably recognize if you read Revelation recently. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that's sort of like what happens in Revelation 20, and that's sort of like what happens in Revelation 22 and such. So here's the book. I don't know if it's the right one, but that's the right cover. I don't like purple so much. Today we're going to look at Matthew's use of Zechariah, and that's mainly because I've been in Matthew for so long been on it for like four years been working on this book so here we go here's the first passage you've seen it before you've probably heard before rejoice greatly O daughter of zion there's that phrase again shout aloud O daughter of jerusalem behold look a here pay attention your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation redemption liberation Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's the New Testament version. Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 to 5. This took place, that is, Jesus coming into the city for the very last time before its crucifixion. What we call Palm Sunday, coming into the town for the very first time, and he's riding on a donkey. Now, we could talk about the whole nature of prophetic events and what it meant, but that's for another day. But this is the passage. All of this took place. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of of a crowd. We don't know how big it was, but to the shouts of some people in the crowd. And this is the passage, he says, and it's a a condensation, if you will, of what Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal 
of a beast of burden. Now remember, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. And so some translation changes come about a little bit through that. But it means the same thing, exactly the same thing. It's a quotation from there. Well, I want to show you a picture here of um, what Roman power looked like. The Roman world, Israel, Judah, was under the occupation of Roman powers and forces. And this is what Roman power looked like. This is called a triumph. It was very common that when a general went off and had a war and it was successful in that war, that he would come back and he would be given a triumph. He would ride into the city. Notice he's on this big golden kind of colored chariot. He's seated there. He's either, I can't tell, he's either a general or he's the emperor himself. In some cases, it was both. Who's riding through the city and behind him are soldiers and citizens of that great city, the great city of Rome. You can see all their lances sticking up. Now, that could be a problem historically because there was a question about whether weapons could be taken into Rome by soldiers. So that's a historical question. But here he is riding, notice he's riding behind some really feisty stallions, powerful animals. There's a guy even here, you can see him, he's trying to hold on to one of the horses to keep it from going, going crazy, but he's prancing and dancing and kicking. And you can just imagine what happens in the next frame that this poor guy is trampled by him. He's probably a slave, and nobody would know, and nobody would care. And here you have the leg of a slave running ahead of time, because when the, when the general came in, he came in with all the slaves, because these guys were takers. They came in, and they took. They took the lives of people. They took their property. They took their gold and their silver. They took their virginity of young ladies. They took the life out of families and, and, and took them away. They were takers. And so behind them would be a, a whole host, a stream of all the slaves who would be chained and, and in dejection, walking, 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 not riding, but walking. This is Roman power. And you can see here some of the spoils of war, probably taken from some ancient temple brought into the city. All that would make this man more rich than he had ever imagined. And they took a lot of that wealth themselves. That's Roman power. That's power, Roman style. Well, this is power Jesus style. He comes riding in. Now, this is much later. This doesn't really reflect the history of the day exactly, but you get a sense. Jesus is riding. He's riding on a beast of burden. There's the foal that's with it, probably a mare. And all the people looking up devotedly, devotedly, devotedly. Not a smile on anybody's faces exactly. There's only one guy that you kind of have to worry about, and that's this guy right here. I think he's checking out that lady right there. Or he's looking at her and said, what are you doing here? 
you're a little bit too close to this Messiah guy. Women aren't supposed to be in this spot. Get back in the back where you belong. It's probably what he's saying. But Jesus comes riding in humbly. Again, we don't know the size of the crowd. We do know the size of the crowd better on these Roman triumphs because they're documented in all sorts of different ways in Roman history. But this is power, Jesus style. He comes riding humbly, bringing righteousness, bringing salvation. Not by taking lives, not by taking goods, but by giving. It's a different way. This is your king, Zechariah said. Nobody had ever seen a king like this. What kind of king are you talking about? Wouldn't be king very long, would he? We go that way. Here's another passage out of Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David. This is the, 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 Messiah, uh, the Messiah's family. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced. It's a strange translation. I'm not sure what to make of it. I need to go back and examine the Hebrew once again. But I do know that this is a hard passage to translate. Notice again, when they look on me, this is God speaking. When they look on me, and then another pronoun, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns only for, for an only child, weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is Zechariah 12, verse 10. Here is one coming, a shepherd. If we were to read above that, it would be talking about a shepherd that is coming. Shepherd is one of the images for the Messiah. When the when Messiah comes, he's going to be pierced, in other words. This was a common, this became a common thread much later in Judaism. And here's the passage from the book of Revelation. I decided to put a little Revelation here too. Behold, look at here, pay attention. He is coming, John says. Coming with the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So, even so, amen. This is the passage taken directly from that, that thought about the, the piercing of the Messiah. The piercing of God, as it were. In the, who is the embodiment of the one true God of Israel. This week, my wife and I had a chance to see a replica of the Shroud of Turin. Have you, have you seen that Shroud of Turin? It's really interesting. Now, this is, not, this is a picture of the original. It's in Turin, Italy. It only kind of makes it an appearance. The Catholic Church brings it out for, for viewing every 25 years. But there's a certified replica in Houston now at a museum that I didn't know existed until a couple of years ago. It's called the Muse, National Museum. What is it, Bob? What is it? National Museum of Funeral History. Thank you. I couldn't, I was getting my words mixed up. It's, it's located not far from here, the National Museum of Funeral History. It's, it's amazing to see that. This is the original, not the replica. The replica looks very much like it. It's, it's, it's really identical in color. It's identical, it's the same kind of old linen grown off of old flax, old seed. And it's a beautiful piece. Now, in there, you can see the image here of a man. 
who's been crucified. This is the head, the torso. The front, this is the head and the back here. You see all the slices in the back. You see all the blood. Get a sense. Now, I'm not claiming that this is original. I think it's worth thinking about, though. Because I know, and I have met a number of scientists and people who aren't so sure whether it is or whether it's not. But it is, nevertheless, an opportunity for us to think about and think about our devotion to Christ and turn it around, his devotion to us in giving, 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 not taking, taking, taking. Most politicians, most kings are going to want to take, take, take. This king comes to give, give, give. And we see that reflected here. And all the blood marks through, throughout there. A lot of really interesting things there. And there's an artist, I think he's in Italy, who, who came up with a 3D picture of what this figure would have looked like. He would have been right about six feet tall, which is for that day quite tall. And you see here the piercing in his side. That's reflected in that shroud. And he's taken the image of the shroud and now he's made a 3D model of that. It's it's an amazing thing. I would encourage you to go see it. It's very interesting. There's a lot of stuff in the news. You go to shroud.com and you read all about it, I think. But this gives us a way of thinking about the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus. The seriousness of the sacrifice of Jesus and what, what it truly cost him. Well, our time is moving along. What time? 10.06. Okay, we're okay. All right, here's a couple more, and then we're going to go the, to the other passages. Wake, O sword, against thy shep- my shepherd, against the man who stands uh, next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Oh, you probably begin to remember that. The shepherd, a messiah, a king. And here it is in Matthew 26, Jesus said to his own disciples, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, when the, and, and before that, when the disciples are pledging their undying affection and loyalty to Jesus, Jesus knows the truth, because you know what? He's read Zechariah. When the shepherd is struck, as in the arrest, trial, crucifixion of Jesus, all the sheep scattered. And this is what happened. We know it. Some stayed true and stayed close, but not too close. But others came back after a while. But strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And they were. They were scattered. Another passage, Zechariah 11. Very very interesting passage. I wish we had time to explore it completely. They weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Now, this is Zechariah. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Again, this is a very difficult passage to translate. Exactly what does it mean? But we, 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 we do know enough to know that this one is described as being from the Lord as having thrown back 
the 30 pieces of silver, having been paid the price of 30 pieces of silver. And of course, that comes out in the New Testament. One of the 12, his name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So what that would have looked like in those days. Those are Roman silver coins. You can probably see some of those at the Linear Theological Library. I don't know. I think we have some of those, actually. I've got this cord here that's bothering me. Uh, put it down. I'm not sure that's going to help. Let's look on, on that day. You know, I need some help for this. Ms. Carolyn, would you come up here and help me? Would you mind? Y'all give it up for Ms. Carolyn, would you? I appreciate you coming all the way up here. All right, now I'm kind of a rookie at this machine called the IPVO or ITVO or what is this called? I want you to help me. Come over here on this side. I'm looking at a lot of passages. I've already marked them in yellow. I want you to help me to make sure that I keep those passages right in the center. You know, I can't see. You can't see? <laughs> I'm having a problem with it, but I. Oh. if it's like that, I can see it. Can you see it? All right. If you see, see it there. Yeah. All right. I can see it there. All right. Let's try it. Let's try it. We'll switch over. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look in chapters 12 through 14 at all these on that day passages. Yeah, you don't have to read them. You just have to make sure that that yellow text right okay. there okay. is right, right in the middle. Now, I've got to go up and down here somehow. What do I do? I guess I get, can I go closer? That way! Okay. Is that okay? Is that big enough? You can see that? All right. I'm going to read it while you help me make sure that it stays right there. All right. All right. Thank you. Now, we haven't planned this, have we? No, we haven't. <laughs> I just want to make sure nobody thinks we actually planned this because we didn't. I certainly didn't. Anyway, here we go. On that day. Now, these are, these are the prophecies that are being made and referring to the day. Well, what day is that talking about? Let me show you here if I can. Let me switch back over here. It's referring to that day. When God and the Messiah together, I mean, not necessarily separately, but as one, come together and enter into the world. It's not a single day, 24-hour period. It's an epoch. It's a period of time of history. During that time, which we'll switch back over, hopefully it'll work. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, all the nations that have been coming coming against Israel, they're going to they're gonna try to pick up Israel, and man is going to break their backs. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and every rider with madness. These are not just your average horse riders. These are your military, the people who ride behind the Caesars on horses with lances. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of the wood. In other words, that pot is going to be burning up its neighbors. Those neighbors that have tried to reduce them to cinders are themselves going to face God's reciprocal justice and themselves be reduced after, the, after that. Now, we're going to come over to thir 13. On that day, 
There shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Keep reading. On that day I will cut off the names of idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. On that day, every prophet, this is false prophet, every false prophet will be ashamed of his visions when he prophesies. Even his parents are ashamed of him. It's pretty bad when your mom's ashamed of you, right? And then coming back here, chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. In other words, there will be an attack on Jerusalem. There will be an attack on God's people. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is the biblical Old Testament basis for what we call Armageddon. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. The Lord joins the battle. Yes, it looks lost until the Lord joins the battle. He fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east, it says. And then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. A reference to angels, angelic powers. On that day, there shall be no... Light, cold, or frost. That's probably a bad translation. I, th- I think a better translation of that would be, on that day there should be no frost and no cold. Because the word light is actually a part of the next for it phrase. There shall be a day of light, which is known to the Lord. There's not going to be day and then night, but in evening there shall be light. In other words, a continuous day, light and no darkness. We see this in the book of Revelation. On that day, living waters shall flow from the Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. Living waters, running waters, moving waters, not stagnant pools of water. Moving waters, living waters. And here's, here's the crux of it all. The Lord will be king. That word Lord, take a look. All capitals. It's the unique name of God. The Yod, the Hey, the Vav, the Hey. Unspeakable name of God. That name, the name of that one will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. When Jews gathered together, Miss Carolyn, on Friday night, and on Saturday mornings for, 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 for their meetings, one of the things that they recite is called the Shema. Yeah. And this is how it goes. Hold on. Let me, you know it already. No, I don't. I yeah, you do. <laughs> See if we can get this on. Is this going to come on? It's going to come on. Okay. So how does it go? I know this much. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul. <laughs> all that, all that together. That's part of the Shema, right? Yeah. Yes. And she did good. Give her a hand. Thank you, Miss Carolyn, for your help today.
She did good. Thank you. So this is what they say. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. The Lord who is one. The Lord who is one. He is with us. He will be in our midst. That's the promise. They sing that. They sing that. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Everybody. Shema Yisrael. You don't know that tune, do you? You need to teach that to your worship leader. It's a great tune. Easy to play. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's like the, their Lord's prayer. It's like the reciting the central creed over and over again. And here it is, expressed beautifully. The Lord will be our king. On that day, the Lord will be one. And his name, one. It's a reflection of that. Well, uh, we could keep going because there's more on that day passages. But I want to just sort of uh, summarize here and think through some of these Here, it begins in chapter 12 with the idea of the oracle being a burden. Imagine being the guy, imagine being the person who is tasked with taking this message to your leaders. Can you imagine that would be a burden? Can you imagine that would be a hardship? On on the one hand, you love the message because there's a promise of God coming, but on the other hand, there's also a promise and a threat that the nations will rise against us. That's the day coming. It's coming a day when that's going to happen. I don't know how, I don't know when. Now, we've got to be careful, I think. And this is me, this is, this is an aside. I think we have to be careful in distinguishing between a national sense of Israel and, and an international sense. Because Israel is all over the world. There are more Jews living probably in New York in the United States and living in Israel. It's like 14 million left in the world. That's all. They've been rubbed out and rubbed out and rubbed out. Anti-Semitism is growing, is growing. And and, and a lot of the Middle East and in a lot of Europe, the nations are against Israel. Not just the national sense of Israel as as a state that was founded in 1948, almost what, 75 years ago? Here's the oracle. Got to get this thing working. Ah, switch. <laughs> Jerusalem is going to be victorious. These are the promises. On that day, Jerusalem and all of it represents and its holiness and its people, the people of the book, are going to be victorious. Victory is coming. We might think it's not, but victory is coming. It might feel like it's not, but victory is coming. Then the Lord is going to be a shield over the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's that's part of what it says there. Chapters 12, 13, 14. All the nations that are going to seek to destroy Israel, they themselves are going to be destroyed when God joins the battle. And it's not going to be 
you know, because we've got superior military, this or that or the other. It's going to be a divine, divine movement from, from top to bottom. And finally, we have to move that up. The people of David, the Messiah, and Jerusalem are going to find forgiveness. It's really a key thing throughout the Old Testament, the idea of coming before God and being people who are forgiven. Some of the most beautiful passages about forgiveness are not found in the New Testament, but in the Old. I would encourage you to go back and read those passages about forgiveness and God's promise of forgiveness and how forgiveness is, 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 is understood back there. But here it says that the Lord will create a fountain, and that fountain is a fountain of cleansing, a fountain of forgiveness. But there's more. Get back up there. What are you doing? All right, we'll try that. Idolatry, false prophecy, thing of the past. All forms of idolatry, not just the idolatry of statues around the house that may be dot mantelpieces, but the kind of idolatry that we find in all sorts of places in our own lives. That idolatry, a thing of the past. And the Lord stands to defend Jerusalem over and over again. The Lord comes with all the holy ones with him. The Lord arrives. The promise of God's coming into the world. No cold weather. I love that, right? That was a little cool for me. It was about you, you when you got out. 50 degrees. You know you're a Texan, you know. If, if 60 degrees is just a little bit chilly, you know you're a Texan. And that's how it feels, right? I love those Je- Jeff Foxworthy things. You know you're a Texan. My favorite is this. If you drive around with jumper cables in your car, and your wife knows how to use them, you must be a Texan, right? (laughs) That's a Texan. But here, here, the idea of cold weather is a thing of the past, the bitterness, the coldness. And no more night. No more fear of the dark. Living waters flowing. Fresh waters flowing. Rivers of water, not floods, not torrents, not destruction, but the water that is beautiful and needed. That's the picture here. And the Lord himself will be king over all the earth. And that's key to the whole thing. The Lord will be king over all the earth. Well, here's a few things. Let me move it on down to some points for home. Just a few items to think about from all of the stuff in, about Messiah and God and the coming of God in the world and this court sort of understanding that in the coming of God is also the coming of the Messiah. Some po- points are home. And here's the first one. The work of the Messiah is also the work of the people of the Messiah. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then his work now is your work. Your primary vocation may, you know, I mean, where you make money may be something different, but everyone in here has a vocation to do what the Messiah is. What is his vocation? To end, put an end to evil, oppression, sin, sickness, and death. We are to fight against it. We are to strive against it but according to the right kind of power. 
Not the wrong kind of, the Jesus kind of power. Not the Roman power, but the Jesus power. We are to fight. We're to stand. That's our vocation too. Yes, we're to extend the kingdom. That's part of it. But we are to take up his mantle. He has left it to us. He has commissioned us to take that message, to take that world, to take these tasks and to represent them well before the world and to be seen as the liberators, to be seen as the rescuers, to be seen as those who relieve oppression, as those who fight injustice, of those who stand against evil, of those who do everything within the power of human beings to conquer and to extinguish and to push back the power of death. That's part of our job. It's a pretty big job. And if we understand it well, then we'll be able to to be more like Jesus, I would suggest. Which leads me to this question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. It's a a Christian confession. We believe him to be the Messiah. We believe him to be God's anointed, that guy who does all that stuff, right? And he gets it started and he leaves it to us and he is with us in that struggle, in that power, and he is the embodiment of of the God of Israel. He is the Lord who has come. He is the Lord, as the song says, the Lord who is come. He is here. He is present. He is with us. But Jesus is, to be honest with you, a most unusual king. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to sort of understand that. Here is Jesus entering into the city for the last time. Jesus has power. He has authority. There's no doubt about that. We see that in his work and ministry. But he exercises a strange kind of power. What Robert Capon calls a left-handed power. Not right-handed. A power that comes from elsewhere. A power that seems to be not even power at all in some realms. And Jesus, beyond that, and related to that, really, he comes to serve and not to be served. You remember the the Roman triumph? All those people there were to serve the emperor, to serve the general, to lay down their lives. And whatever the general said, you would lay down your lives for that general. Jesus comes not to say, you serve me. He comes to say, I I want to serve you. And that should be our calling card. Our business card should say, I'm here to serve you. And why? Because Jesus did that. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, that's what you do. So Jesus comes to serve and and not to be served by others. His way is a way of humility. His path is a path of humility. His motivation behind all that he does is love, care, true care for people, for the world, for creation. And here's how he wins. 
He doesn't win like the Roman emperors by taking, 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 taking. He wins by giving and having given and giving into the future. He wins by giving his life as a ransom for many. That's That is so counterintuitive to the world at that time and even to our world today where we think power is really invested in right-handedness. Not in humility, but in bravado. Not in bowing down to serve and wash the feet, but in demanding somebody else wash my feet. It's a different way. In short, we are to follow his example. My hope for you, my prayer for you, and for me too, I mean, I struggle with this. All of us struggle with it. Is what does it mean to follow Jesus? And I think the more more we gaze upon him, the more we think about it, the more we read these texts, the more we encounter, uh, the the better sense we have of who Jesus is and who we are to be as his followers. Not taking, taking, taking. Not demanding, demanding, demanding. But giving in humility, in service. That should be our calling card. And I'll pray that for me, I pray that for you. As we think about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, for the, for, for, for the Messiah to come and to transform the world in the ways that we've been describing here. Join me as we pray. Father, thank you for these good people. They've been so attentive and thoughtful and so engaged. Thank you. I pray your blessing upon them and that, that these thoughts and these words might take root in our souls, that we might be servers, not takers. Make us humble where we are proud. And help us to look forward to the victory that is to come. Not by our our hands, but by yours. And we ask this in your name. Amen.